Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, friends. I'm reminding you we have an upcoming Lit Europe tour, and we would love for you to join us, whether you live in Europe or not. Get on to these workshops. Maybe travel with us and go from one place to another. I mean, we're going to Paris. We're going to Frankfurt, Germany. Then we're heading to Salzburg, Austria. We're going to have the best time, and we would love to see you. There's nothing like an in-person workshop experience to fine-tune your movement, get some real educational nuggets for better movement on and off the mat. And by the way, we have the best time together. We would love to give you a hug and help you move your best and feel your best. So join us in Europe this summer. Check out the show notes for all the details. Today's podcast is sponsored by one of our favorite products, Almond Cow. We've been using it for well over a year. And I say we, mostly my husband, Mark, who is mooing. Honey, what are your thoughts about Almond Cow? <laughs> this is the moo man. He's back. <laughs> I love the almond cow because we know how great it is. Anything that you could can make a plant-based milk with, you're set. And I just have it. I don't need to make make that much. It's just sitting in the pantry. And then when we're ready, I just make it. It takes a minute. Is it? It tastes so good. It tastes so good. And. For those of you who are thinking about it, let me tell you why. There, there are no added preservatives, any kind of artificial stuff. You put in it what you want. You can sweeten it to your taste. It is so easy to make, so easy to clean up, and it's pure gold. It really is. And they give you a lot of recipes on the Almond Cow website. You have the recipe, so you don't have to think, you don't have to go anywhere to find it. It's there for you. Yes, we love it so much. So if you're interested in getting your own, go check out the link or just go to their site, almondcow.co. And you can use code Lara, L-A-R-A, for extra savings. Go get yourself one and have fun. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns, so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have a beautiful new friend with me, Whitney Lynn Allen. I actually discovered Whitney or got to know her and a little bit about her background through Instagram. I saw a video where she was talking about her experience with grief after becoming a widow at a very young age. And I just really could see this genuine, raw, um, authentic energy emanating through this little square. So 
I dug out some information and Whitney was so generous and sent me her book called Running in Trauma Stilettos, which is wonderful. And it gives you a super up close and personal glimpse at grief and life after loss and the tragedy that she had to endure after her husband died from a very rare allergic reaction. But he didn't die right away. He had irreversible brain damage and was alive for a number of months. And we just talk about this journey of getting up from despair, moving through life when something like this has happened and changed her trajectory. She is now a certified grief educator, and she shares how she just wants to help others. And I just am so impressed and in awe of her, of how she's made this own chapter in her life um, something that she can share with others and teaching us all kind of like grief is not taught in school and teaching us how to be there for others in grief and how to process grief and all of it. So listen up and check out more on this beautiful woman, Whitney. Welcome, Whitney. I'm really so thrilled and honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I found you on Instagram, and I mentioned that in the intro. And uh, what struck me is, you know, in this little square, it's kind of a place. I think you can have a little bit of a BS detector sometimes. And you just... I don't know. You just struck me immediately. Um, your honesty, your eloquence, the rawness of what you're going through, of what you've been through, and what you continue to go through. And what I appreciate um, so much, and what I want to convey to some of the people today who might be listening, I think everybody's going to experience grief in different different losses. But um, how there's not any major great book on it. There's lots of books on grieving, but that nobody, you don't read until you're in it. So I think there's ways of, that you can share your story that not only might help somebody that's grieving, but might also, more importantly, help people to support uh, people who are grieving. So let's just start from the beginning. Okay. Uh, you, you were married and you, so that's another story. Like, what is it like when your spouse is dead and somebody says, are you married? Like uh, that is like you feel married anymore. Like how do you when is it that you started to say something different or like did it feel does it still feel strange? Yeah, that's uh, that's such an interesting question. So. My situation was very different than a lot of people's experience with losing a spouse because it it was both sudden and not sudden because of the nature of Ryan's injury. He was, it was a very severe brain injury from anaphylaxis from a bee sting. Um, so it wasn't like cancer where you could still kind of like talk to the person up until the time that they get really, really ill or at like some other diseases with Ryan. Once he had his cardiac arrest, which caused the brain injury, he did not exist anymore in terms of who Ryan was. So I say that he died twice for for me, and I know his his family, his my mother in law and sister in law, they they feel the same way. So um, his accident happened on October fourteenth, two thousand and twenty one, 
And that for me really felt like the day that he died. Obviously, I felt so married to him during that time period. Like I was so married to him. I took care of him. Um, I was devoted to him. Uh, but I had a chance to distance myself from the fact that I knew that Ryan probably would never come back in the capacity as a husband as he was prior to October 14th. So it's like you're grieving in that interim between that even though you still have hope for a miracle, you know realistically that probably won't happen because it's so rare and it would have to be a miracle. So you really start grieving and I started the grieving process. So, you know, in my mind to protect myself, I had to be like, you know, I'm not going to be married soon or when he Mm -hmm. dies, like I'm not going to be married. So when he actually, his physical body died and I had, you know, lived out the till death do us part, um, that we say in our vows when you get married, um, I did feel a very like almost like a cosmic shift. Like I did not feel married anymore because I had already not had his support as a husband, that confidant, um, you know, someone to tell about your day, someone to hug you and kiss you like a spouse would. So it's like, I had so much time to step, to have that separation. Like I was living by myself for six months before his physical body died. And for someone that's been with someone for 10 years, that feels like an eternity not to have that person with you. Um, so I, I know a lot of widows, they will, they'll leave their wedding rings on for a long time, which is totally fine after their spouse died. For me, I took mine off pretty soon after Ryan died because it just felt like I wasn't married anymore because I already had had that separation. Um, so I think after, to answer your question, um, I think after Ryan's physical body died was when I just, I did not feel married anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm imagining there's no right or wrong path to preparing for someone's death. Like it could happen. Like if he had died that day, you would have had lots of months. Was there any, um, any, I guess let's backtrack so that people know what we're talking about. I was, I'm going to say, was there any kind of silver lining to having a little more time um, while he was his physical body was still here, but he, uh, but you knew that he, Ryan as a husband was not going to be coming back. So let's yeah. backtrack for people who haven't read your amazing book. Um, can you tell everybody about the the day that Ryan had this bizarre and uh-huh. probably very very like. Um, so rare accident that led to his eventually his death okay yeah it was it was such a normal day uh it was two days after our eight-year wedding anniversary so we were married october 12 2013 so we had um celebrated our eight-year wedding anniversary two days before and ryan had a pretty rare day off um because he had been work, he worked a lot during the summertime going into the fall. Because a lot of people in his department, he was a canine officer. You know, they go to their beach houses, and that's when he kind of put in a lot of his work. Um, so I think he had taken off for our anniversary, like the couple days before his accident, um, and he went to the gym, uh, which he he was very uh, avid uh, CrossFitter. So he went to the gym. 
And I I can only guess because I didn't get enough details from him before uh, he had his reaction, but he told me when he got back from the gym that he had gotten stung on the inside of one of his arms, which he did show me because I was working from home that day when he got home. And, um, you know, it, it probably wasn't even a minute after he said that once he got home from the gym that he said, I feel really weird. Had he ever was, had any, I'm sorry, had he been bitten by, okay. stung by a bee before? Had he, did yeah. he know? Yes. Yeah. And so, he had, yeah. He had been fine. So he had no known reaction, um, allergic reaction to bee venom. He had been someone in childhood. He had been stung in adulthood, even during our marriage. So... You know, when he got stung, which I think was probably in the car on the way home from the gym, it was a warm October day uh, on the East Coast. So he liked to have his windows open. So I'm guessing the bee flew in when he was driving Um, and the gym is about 10 minutes away. So I'm only guessing that would just make sense to me. Um, And then when he got home, he you know, he, he started feeling very weird. And then I knew because he told me he had gotten stung by a bee. I just, I knew what was happening of the way that he sounded just made my, the hair stand up on my body. Cause it was just chilling the way he said that. And I immediately called 911. I was 26 weeks pregnant. So I'm like not moving that fast, but like I moved very fast. Um, was trying to get Benadryl from our medicine cabinets and we only had children's Benadryl, but like while this is all happening, cause you're in like fight or flight. And I was just like, I guess I just, I, I went into tunnel vision. So I'm all I'm really hearing and concentrating on is what the 911 operator is asking me and telling me, and I'm trying to give her information and directions. And like, they actually, they ask a lot of information when you're on the phone with 911. Um, it's not like they just like, like they dispatch right away, but they ask you a lot of questions. So I was so focused on giving her the information. Ryan went downstairs during this time uh, and his canine Louie followed him. And I remember just how he looked going down the stairs. He just looked like he was stumbling, like he wasn't, he like almost disoriented. And then I lost sight of him. And then uh, suddenly the 911 operator said, do you know where he is now? And I did it because I was so tunnel vision on talking to her. So I run downstairs. I can't find him. He's not responding to my yelling. And then suddenly I see that our front door is cracked open. So I fling open the door and Ryan is sitting on our stoop, passed out, slumped over. So I rush over to him and he was a big guy. He was um, 220 pounds, 6'2", very muscular, very fit. And like, I'm five to 26 weeks pregnant. Like I'm straining to try to put him back and not like hit his head on the ground. So I kind of like almost like bear hug him. So I'm like behind him. Um, and he, he's having trouble breathing at this point, but he's not completely unresponsive. He just, he cannot respond to me because he can't breathe. And the 911 operator instructed me to start CPR. So that's what I did. And then he was kind of in and out of like gasping for air and then like almost not breathing. Um, and during this time, I'm just screaming like for anybody to come help me. Yeah. And it was so weird that day. Our, we live in this neighborhood where neighbors are very close. Like they always 
wave and come over and there's always like people walking their dogs. And on that day, there was like nobody out. It was just so eerily quiet. And somebody, one of our neighbors was sawing a tree. So my screams were getting drowned out by that. Um, so it was just like the perfect storm of events for people to not hear my screams and for help. Um, and then the EMS did get there. I have no idea how long they took. It felt like forever. I, I think it was just like five minutes or something. Cause we don't live in like, we're not in the middle of nowhere. We're like in the center of town. Um, and I, when they got there, I rushed off the porch and kind of let them do their thing. And during that time is when Ryan went into cardiac arrest and they couldn't start his heart for about 20 minutes. And they finally got his heart started in the ambulance while they were taking him to the hospital. And I was already on my way to the hospital to meet him. I can't even imagine that. Like how many times you must have relived that scene in your head because it's so... It's like you can't, it, it's like being a step behind like reality like what is happening and trying to keep literally your head on and and um, follow the instructions but it sounds like there was nothing that was going to prevent this final um, big event which is that he lost oxygen to his brain for 20 minutes and so when people hear about, being on life support or like did you immediately get the word that there was not brain activity or what did they tell you at first so he was sent to a, like a at the hospital that's closest to us so they don't have they didn't have what ryan needed um so he was actually he was airlifted to penn presbyterian in philadelphia that has a neuro icu but while we were at Doyle Town Hospital, which is like just a town hospital, and it's very good, they just they didn't have what we needed, um, so they couldn't do like the brain testing there. Um, but obviously, you know, not having oxygen for twenty minutes um, is not good. And there was a hospitalist there that said, you know, he shouldn't have said this because I don't I think it was premature and also not like in his specialty. Um, but he said, you know, the prognosis is really poor. And even though we had no brain testing, so, you know, my mother-in-law and I just like, we stared at each other and we kind of just like told him to go away. Cause we didn't want to hear that like right then. Oh yeah. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, he was just, it was not the best bedside manner, but anyway, um, I pushed to have him transferred to somewhere that had a neuro ICU and we got him a bed, um, in Philadelphia and you know they did imaging there and he had have had it showed a severe anoxic brain injury so his it showed that parts of his brain um were very damaged from the lack of oxygen and when you are deprived of oxygen for that long um your brain it's damaged like it's you know it, it's traumatic even though it's not like a physical force so there's a lot of swelling that happens. Um, so the real risk after anoxia is that the brain will swell to a point where um, it basically goes 
into your brainstem, which you would be instantly brain dead. So Ryan was not brain dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and they did everything that they could to prevent the swelling, um, from, you know, exacerbating to the point where he was brain dead. So he avoided brain death. Uh, and Ryan was able to, he was on a ventilator, um, and he was in very, very, very critical condition, um, the, especially the first two weeks after his injury, because that's when the swelling is the highest. Um, they put a bolt in his head, uh, literally did brain surgery like at bedside, and it records the swelling, the ICP, which is the intracranial pressure in your brain. So they're able to titrate medication to help with the swelling. So it's the most accurate way to show how much brain swelling is happening. Um, and they just had that available uh, at Penn Presbyterian, which we are very grateful for. They had a lot of things that a lot of hospitals do not have. Um, so Ryan was able to avoid brain death and his um, the swelling did subside, but there was still so much um, damage from the lack of oxygen. So he was able to come off the ventilator. He weaned himself off the ventilator, which was I think a, a miracle in itself that he was able to do that. Um, they put a trach in because when you have a brain injury, you still can't manage the cretions. Like you can't swallow like we can. You can't eat um, because you're not, your awareness is not, it's right. so minimal. So they have to maintain an airway. So he had surgery. So instead of having the tubes down his throat, uh, to maintain some sort of airway just in case he couldn't, he needed oxygen again. Um, they put they put a tube um, in your throat so you can attach a ventilator just in case you need it um, and other devices uh, to help with respirations and whatnot. Um, and they also put in a G-tube so he could get nutrition that way because he couldn't eat. Um, and during his time in the ICU, which was eight weeks. Um, he was starting to respond to commands um, very minimally, but he was moving his hand, one of his hands um, or his arm to command. And, you know, we were very hopeful because, you know, that was a huge deal coming from completely in a coma, unresponsive to like moving stuff. So, you know, we had a lot of hope when we were in the ICU. Um, and then that kind of changed after we left there. So from the ICU, and at, when you're in the ICU, was it just kind of like wait and see um, the messaging that you were getting? Like, we're not sure what kind of, uh, you know, brain damage there is, um, what, how, how much he will get back or rewire. You, what were you being told at that point? Yeah, so in the ICU, um, the doctors actually gave us the option to take Ryan off of life support because of the amount of damage that they could see on um, the studies. So, like, that would have made sense to take him off life support based on those imaging. Um, but because they also told us that because, um, you know, sometimes because it's the brain, um, they don't know just because the imaging is bad, what that means in terms of clinical outcomes, because they explain sometimes 
really bad studies can be a better clinical outcome than good studies because the brain does and can rewire itself and is very mysterious in that way and is unlike any other organ of the body. Um, so I wanted to give Ryan, because he's so young, and I so wanted him to get better, and I so like wish for a miracle and hope for one, I wanted to give him time to fight. Um, and, you know, in my brain, I, I was thinking, I'll know when we're done mm-hmm. fighting, but right now we're not done fighting yet. So I, I said, we're not doing that. And like I said, he was able to come off the ventilator um, and be discharged from, from the ICU. So I felt like I had me, I like we made, um, when I say I, it really was me, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law, we all made the decisions together to do this. Uh, so it wasn't just me. Um, but, you know, because it's the brain you just you don't know so yeah. i wanted to give ryan the best chance of recovery um and he did he fought he fought really hard to come back did he ever show anything more than a few um signs from those early days unfortunately no like that was what he was doing in the icu was the extent like that was the best that mm-hmm. he did after that time and then when he got out of the icu he went to rehab. Um, we got him into Moss Rehab, which we were told, like, you know, that's where miracles happen. So I wanted, that's what, it's one of the best brain rehabs in the entire country. And it's pretty close to where we live. Um, and he physically was not doing well. He was aspirating after his trait because of, um, he had a lot of secretions. So he was getting pneumonias and he, you know, rehab is, no joke like they put you through a lot physically and he just couldn't do it so the first time he was admitted to rehab he couldn't physically do the rehab program um so they actually and he ended up in the er like two or three times which was very traumatic for me it was traumatic for ryan and and our family this was like right before christmas horrible um so he was transferred from moth to an acute care facility, which is like a step down from an ICU to get better physically before he could go back to rehab because they couldn't manage him mm-hmm. at rehab. You have to have a baseline, like physical, like your physicality needs to be um, pretty stable in rehab because they just don't, they can't manage it there. Um, so he needed to get physically better before they could even work on the rehab. Um, so he was there. And during that time, I got COVID from one of his nurses at the acute rehab. It was right before I was like, going to give birth. And they shut everything, like they shut it down. Like they put him on quarantine for 14 days, even though he tested negative twice, would not allow any family members, even healthy ones to see him. And I really think this is when things just like went downhill because when you have that kind of brain injury, you need constant simulation. And he was getting it while we were while we were there before that time. And then it just like stopped. And then he wasn't getting like any stimulation. Like there's no nurses even coming in a lot because he was on quarantine. And like there's only so much like time that they spend with them. Um, so when 
the 14 days were up. That was the time period that I actually gave birth to our second son. And when I came back after he was done his quarantine, um, I just felt like he had really regressed. Like the light like went off. I feel like he just stopped fighting during that time. Hmm. So you are just in this whole time period, you, you have a toddler, you're preparing for birth, um, and you're probably, I imagine, having the thoughts of what is next. Um, when did you start to discuss with either the family or start to think for yourself, like, this is not what he would want? This is not what he, any of us would want this. And by the way, I've worked in rehab. I've worked in brain injury unit. I've worked in subacute and acute. And it is very clear when someone's life, um, quality of life is just never going to be anything that they would want for themselves. And yet they aren't able to express it. And so it, the burden is put on the family, which is really challenging, okay. but it's ultimately a gift and it's a, it's a real, it takes, and that's really this courage that you have having all these other things you're figuring out, um, with the new baby and with the grief of your husband, not being who he was, but also then having to decide that this is not what he would want. When did you come to that and, and and who helped you with that? Yeah, I think after I saw Ryan when he was out of quarantine and I just saw just like he really had become like a shell. I think in the ICU, he would still look like Ryan, like because he had it lost as much weight because it was close to his accident. And then like when you don't see somebody for, you know, 14 days and then you see them again in this position and like he just lost a lot of weight and he just uh I think that was the time period that I really started thinking like I don't he's not gonna come home Mm -hmm. um but I wanted to go through the motions like I still hope for a miracle and you know he was supposed to go back to rehab so uh he was able to get discharged back to rehab and and do that Um, And then when he was in rehab for the second time um, and we weren't seeing any improvement and he was deteriorating physically. And I think a lot of people don't understand that when you have a brain injury, it's not just like you can't respond and eat and, and do anything that makes you, you, but your physical body, because you're in bed really suffers and a brain injury is so unique because there are other things that happen to your body um that physically affects you so ryan was getting hyper growth of bone like in some of his joints because of the brain injury and that that happens a lot um with brain injury so when they were doing physical therapy you would try to like stretch out his knees or his elbows Um, or those joints, like you could see he was grimacing. Um, and he did feel pain because that's such a, like, that's a very fundamental thing that he could feel that. Um, and you could tell when he was in pain and I just saw like him suffering when that was happening and like he needed, but he needed the rehab because if you don't move those things, it just gets worse. But like he was in pain, he had to be on medication because of that, because of 
the bone growth and to stop that and also the pain. Um, and then, you know, like he still had the trach and he was still like not able to like swallow. So he was just like, you know, it's it just when you see, when you go from seeing a man that could take care of himself and like, he's a police officer and he can do all these amazing things. And then to like, almost it was worse than a, a, a newborn child. Like he couldn't even swallow his spit. So you'd have to clean him up and then he's coughing out of his trach and you were constantly having to clean him up and it's heartbreaking. Um, and I think when he came back to rehab for the second time and I'm just seeing the after effects physically of what this is doing to him, um, I just knew unless I knew he would not want to live like that. And, and were you um, talking about this with his family and they were, were you kind of all on board with this? Yeah. So, I mean, we were all experiencing all of this together and separately because, uh, just the, the policy, like, so COVID was happening last year, like the Omicron was going around. So there were so many policies and stuff for COVID. So we could only go see Ryan one at a time. So we were having our time separately with him and experiencing his, you know, regression, like individually. And then also like then coming together and discussing like what we're seeing and experiencing and just like the despair and just so much was so many different emotions. So all of this was decided with um, myself, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law and you know, we went to Ryan's doctor at rehab and we said, you know, I, you know, we're like done fighting here, Ryan's done fighting. What would palliative care look like? What would hospice look like? We want to know what those things would look like so we can make a decision because we're done. We're mm -hmm. done. Yeah. And where did he, where did he go for hospice? Was he, did he need to stay in the hospital for that or? Did he go to a special place? Yeah. So uh, he was he was stable enough where he could actually go home, but home was not at our home because I didn't want Ryan to die in um, a place where, well, especially our, our oldest son was because I didn't want Jackson, our oldest son, who was four at the time, to have any like traumatic memories of his dad, like. Yeah. dying and his home I, I just I didn't I did not want to do that to him so graciously Ryan's cousin Michael um who I'm very close with and who Ryan was very close with offered his house for hospice so he did go home and mm -hmm. we didn't have to um navigate COVID restrictions or policies and procedures like anybody could come in and see Ryan and um that's what we wanted because we were you know, not only are we battling trying to take care of someone with a, a severe brain injury, but we're battling against all these restrictions in the hospital and visiting policies. And like, it adds a whole other dimension of frustration and um, <laughs> trauma, honestly. Because, yeah, feeling very, um, um, very, a lot, a lot of solitude there, isolated. Yeah, in, in isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and um, unfortunately, not all medical providers and facilities are um, created alike. And there were some that you could tell, like, there's a lot of humanity in them and some mm -hmm. places where there was not. They just, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, um, so let's talk about like the aftermath, the final weeks, the final days, the aftermath. What what have you found was really, really incredibly helpful and nurturing for you? And what have you found maybe that hasn't been as helpful that, you know, right off the bat, every, I think most people's intentions are good, but I think a lot of people are, I know a lot of people are, are very uncomfortable with grief, very uncomfortable with tragedy. You know, my dad died. He was almost 80. Ryan, your husband, 32. I mean, you know, this is, this is a tragedy. So it's like all the layers and people will say things that can be helpful or maybe not so helpful. So I think that one thing that you do on your Instagram and otherwise, I I feel like you're helping people by sharing your story and I'm hoping it's helping you as well. But what, what helped you and what wasn't as helpful during those, that time? Yeah. So you're right. I I think people, they're so desperate to know like the right things to say, the perfect things to say. And it's not about saying anything, honestly, like there's no perfect words that are going to make it better. There are no perfect words that are going to bring peace to somebody. It's not in what people say. It's what, how people show up. And like, like you said, people are so uncomfortable with just being in the presence of grief because it's so raw and it's so painful and you don't know like what to do. Um, so for me, it's the people that just didn't expect anything from me. Um, because when you're in it like that, your social graces go out the window. Like I was another person. Like if, you know, when you, when in normal life, when you're not in crisis and you see somebody, you know, you feel the obligation to like have a conversation with them. When you're in trauma and crisis, you have no energy to give anybody else. And so the people that just like sat with me and I literally didn't say a word and they were okay with me not even saying hello to them. Like those are the people that were so amazing. And they were just like, they didn't even ask me what I needed. They're just like, I know Whitney likes coffee. Like I'm going to bring her a coffee. I'm just going to sit with her. And like those things. And it seems so small, but it was so significant because I didn't feel pressure to have to like entertain or provide information or myself or like be pleasant like I was I mean I probably came off like such a bad person because like I was not nice like I all this like I said all social graces go out the window like you're not pleasant (laughs) well and I think that yeah and this is important to realize too like because I've I've done this before too before I Uh kind of learned more about grief and and how to be there for somebody like you know, writing something or saying like, I'm here for you. Let me know what you need. Well, that is a burden because I, that's the lot. You have no energy to even decide what you need. So, you know, and if you're not sure, like Whitney likes coffee, you could just send a gift certificate or a co- like, or just a, Hey, I hope, you know, just you're in my thoughts. I love you. Here's a hug. Yeah. Or I'm picking up your kid today or the, all the things that, that take that burden of energy off because you're like you said you're sapped yeah it's the you have so much on your plate so somebody just taking one thing off your plate without having to ask you what you need is so crucial like there were some 
um, some of Ryan's family members like would just come over to my house and like if they saw a basket of laundry that needed to be folded, like they'd fold it oh. and like like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like that helped so much. And they didn't say a word to me. It was just done. Like when I got home or like um, Ryan's aunt went to the grocery store and got groceries for me. And like she spent like so much time at Wegmans, like getting everything and like putting everything in my fridge and my pantry and so when I would come home from hospice, because in the, he was on, Ryan was on hospice for 22 days, which was a really long time. And I had a newborn. So I actually didn't stay the night until like the very end because logistically it was a nightmare. Um, so I only started staying there when Ryan was um, like very close to death because it was just too hard because I needed like the crib and like the baby stuff. Uh, even though during the day I was there all day. Um, so people showing up in that way. And like you said, like just showing up with coffee because I'm exhausted or a meal. Um, I'm just sitting with you and letting you cry or just vent or like telling you like a funny story just to get your mind off of something. Mm-hmm. Like people think they you don't want to talk about anything else. But honestly, like I wanted to be distracted. Like I wanted to laugh. Like I wanted... Mm-hmm. I'd be like, tell me gossip. Like, I want to just like, I want to just be out of my head right now. Mm, that's so important. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes, you you know, people are afraid to like say, well, I was doing this with my family. It's like, oh, wait, you're, you're suffering right now with your family. I better not. But it's not like, it, it's not this or that. It's like mm-hmm. all of it. Just because I'm having a suffering with my, in my situation, I want to it helps to hear about and to be lighthearted about something that happens in your family. You know, it's, um, again, I feel like people are just not, we're, none of us are taught this. And it's really, it's such, some people have the instincts of like really how to show up and, and, and other people just are uncomfortable with it. So what were, when the, you know, when he did finally leave his body in this last day of hospice, um, what were your feeling? Were you feeling like, I'm sure it was a mixture. There's got to be relief that he's not suffering. I mean, that's always there. That doesn't mean that, that this is the thing. <laughs> People don't realize you can have a lot of emotions mm-hmm. and hold them all. So feeling relief doesn't mean you're like, grateful the person's not there it's people are so black and white. Like, yeah, you can mm-hmm. feel relief and also feel tremendous, tremendous so- sorrow. So and there's- what were you, what were you feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that day was so, it was so chaotic. It was the most chaotic day of hospice. And hospice was so chaotic. I And also that's another thing people don't realize, especially when they, we're talking about like a young person, like with a young family. I mean, kids were running around, people were coming in and out, like they're lively young people coming in and like they're laughing. So, I mean, it was a very human experience. I just want to add that. But like on the day that Ryan died, I mean, it was the tw- it was 22 days. It was a really long time. And mm-hmm. he had a few episodes before the day that he died where we thought he was going to die. Like we were told like it was his, like it was it and it wasn't. So we were like, oh, like we were just like, okay, if it happens, it happens. Cause like, it's just, it's such a crazy experience. Cause you obviously you don't want this person to go, but you're like, I want you to go because everybody is suffering here. Like mm-hmm. we're all suffering. Um, so that 
the day that Ryan died, it was, he died in the afternoon at around one o'clock and everyone was like screaming and having lunch and like I was distracted. And the only reason that I knew that he was going was because the, the hospice nurse came up to me and was like, this is it. Because like we had been waiting for 22 days and I had it happen yet. So no one was like focused on him like in that moment. Mm-hmm. So everyone was kind of like doing their thing. And um, that morning was really heavy. I don't know. I think so is that it's actually the day that Ryan died is my sister-in-law's birthday. Mm-hmm. So it was my sister-in-law's birthday. And for some reason, we all kind of knew like that was the day. So that morning, we were all hysterically crying. And how would you, how you would expect people to be that are waiting for somebody to die or after somebody dies. And then after he died, you know, I was with him when he took his last breath. And um, after he died, you know, I was really, I was so sad, but also a part of me was very, like you said, very relieved that it was over. He was no longer like stuck in his body. He was no longer suffering. Um, you know, he fought so hard. I, you know, I don't think he wanted to go, but he didn't have a choice, which is why I think he like hung on for so long. I mean, the amount of medication that they gave him, they said like they've never given somebody and seen them like survive that long. Like that's right. how much medication. And we were yeah. telling them to like keep giving him medication because he wouldn't go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after I kind of sat with him for a little bit and it was, you know, I prepared myself so long for this moment and I just wanted to go home. Like, mm-hmm. so I sat with Ryan for a few minutes and everyone, you know, was around me hysterically crying and I kind of just like got my composure and I started going upstairs and packing my stuff so I could go home and like bring my babies home. And, um, because I just felt it was like a release. Like now I'm stepping into my new life that I now have to create. And like, I felt that. Right. Like that heaviness of the unknown, the heaviness of being stuck in this portal of like literal hell because you're, yeah, in you're hell. suspended for months uh-huh. it's got to be like let me go to the next day and so mm-hmm. we can all start to start to heal and process what what has happened um yeah yeah because there's no there's no closure there's no moving forward you are literally mm-hmm. stuck so on that day i finally felt like okay i can actually i can start moving forward mm. And since that day, what what have been some really important things that have helped you heal? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, uh, physical movement exercise is has always been so integral to my life. And obviously, when Ryan was in the hospital, like that went out the window. And like, you know, your mental health really suffers when you're not like moving and, and doing all those things. And obviously you just, you're not eating right. I, I mean, I was, it was a mess. Like you're, you're drinking more alcohol if you drink alcohol, cause you're just trying to like numb yourself. Like I was a mess. <laughs> so after Ryan died, I was like, I need to get, I need to get my body and mind, you know, focused on being healthy again and centered again. 
because I know that you can't just like heal your mental without the physical, like everything is connected. So, um, you know, getting back to working out, getting out in nature, um, starting to, you know, treat my body better, like not, you know, numbing myself with alcohol, eating, you know, something beyond protein bars and coffee all day. Um, and like baked goods was, you know, helped me so much. And then getting new routines and rhythms because you lose your identity when you lose a spouse, especially when you lose a spouse, because everything is tied up in this Mm -hmm. other person. Like when you're with someone for that long, everyone refers to you as like Whitney and Ryan. It's not just like, you know, you're, you're tied to this person and it was just me now. And, you know, I didn't just want to be Ryan's widow. I wanted to be Whitney and I wanted to be, you're a new person after you lose someone. So I knew I had to recreate myself again. Um, so that meant creating routines in my day where it, I could feel more centered and at peace and like not overwhelmed by grief all the time. Cause you do, you need, you need to go in your grief, but you also need to come out of it. You can't just be in it all the time. You need breaks from it because physically, mentally, spiritually, it's too heavy. Yeah. Um, and then also for me, you know, I had two babies. So although everything in those first few months felt so heavy, like everything you just, you feel like you're swallowing down a lump in your throat because you just want to cry all the time. I still force myself to like do things that I enjoyed before Ryan's accident, like going out with friends, um, taking the boys to activities, just getting back to practicing, getting back to my life because I couldn't hide myself because I had two young children. Um, I didn't have that, I guess, luxury, but honestly, I think that was such a blessing because I couldn't just numb myself out. So your baby was born, um, after his accident and you're, okay. you're now five-year-old. How, how did you know what to say? Did you like look at a book for that? Did you ask for how, like, how do you explain to a little toddler, like, dad is not the same and he's changed and then eventually he's you know dying how do you even find the words for that yeah so after ryan's accident uh jackson so he was three at the time like three and a half Mm -hmm. and you know it was like his dad was there one morning and then he wasn't and you know i just intuitively knew like I needed to just tell him the truth and everything that was going on and be transparent and you know I said daddy got really hurt and now he's in the hospital and the doctors are trying to make him better and you know as our journey is kind of continuing and you know Ryan is still in the hospital I wanted to give him context so like I begged the people at Penn to let Jackson come and see Ryan to give him context of like where mommy was going every day and like like where daddy was like that he still exists in this world like he's still here he's just this is where he is now Mm -hmm. um so he was able to see ryan i think two or three times while he was in the icu and i think that was really helpful because it did give him context of like where daddy is and what hospital looks like and what doctors look like and like all these things and you know there were some people that we're like, I don't think that you should do that because that's really like traumatic. And I'm like, no, like he needs to know where his dad is. Like he doesn't realize that he's still like here. Like, well, and also that, you know, like dad just left and 
I don't see him again. That can be translated in a lot of ways. It's like okay. a fear, like that could just happen to anybody. It's like, no, this was a very rare accident. And this is what, yeah, that can be scary to look at somebody, but it's also the reality. And mm-hmm. I think that processing in years to come is good, even now, but, but years to come is going to be super helpful to have that because it wasn't like dad as he was just vanished. Right. I, I think that is more traumatic to a child than showing them the reality of what illness and sickness looks like. And, you know, I think we try to we try to protect our kids so, too much, um, so much so that we like lie to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's going to hurt him no matter what. Yeah. What but- is going to hurt him less in the long run so that he can heal? Is okay. that this happens? It's and the doctors try and make it better, and sometimes that doesn't work. But it's nice. you know we're going to be fine, and we're sad about daddy. It's not dad just left, and they're trying to make him better, and you don't have any like right. little little head concept of that. Right. Exactly. And then as the process, you know, evolved, and then Ryan was put on on hospice, and like in the there was a middle part where Jackson couldn't see Ryan because of the COVID policies. He saw him like a couple times in rehab, but it was so it was way more difficult for um, him to come see Ryan. And the baby came to see Ryan like one day, um, which was like the first time that they met. Um, it was very difficult. Uh, but anyway, I wanted through the process. I wanted to be transparent, honest, tell Jackson like where daddy was, show him where daddy was, like what was going on. And then when hospice was happening, um, we did reach out to a child psychologist to ask, you know, what's the right thing here for him? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want to say anything that will be detrimental. We don't want to do anything that could cause harm in the long run. And, you know, my intuition was correct. Like they were, they basically said, you know, you did the right thing. Like during this process, just being transparent with him and being very literal and showing him like what is going on and just continue to do that and leave open the door for him to interact with Brian or be with Brian and tell him, you know, you know, daddy was really sick and the doctor's trying to make him better, but he can't get better. And now daddy's going to die. And, um, you know, if you want to see daddy before he, you can, you, sh- you know, you should do that. And you can, you can do all the things like you can hug daddy and kiss daddy, hold his hand, or we can just sit in the room with him. So just leaving open the door, but not putting pressure on him and saying, like, you have to do this. Um, so that's what we did. We just we let him kind of guide how we showed up for him. Wow, Mama, you were holding a lot. That makes me want to cry for you. Oh, thank you. I'm really sorry you had to go through all that and still... You are really strong. Thank you. And, I appreciate that. Yeah. So physical exercise, taking care of yourself, um, and has have any of your relationships changed because of you not no longer being in this marriage because he's not here? Yeah, that's um, like one of those things about loss and grief that 
and so hard because you change so much. Like when you're, when you're the person that suffered that loss and, you know, people change for a little bit after a loss like that. They're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, live like Ryan or be more appreciative or be more grateful and like do all these things like that fade, that fade with other people. But for you, you are fundamentally changed forever. Mm-hmm. And there's no way, there's no going back. Other people, it's not really their lives that are affected. So they go back to how it was before because they're not, you're, they're not changed like you are. Um, like I said, the change for them is, is it's not permanent. Right. Um, so you do, you lose connections with people because they don't understand you anymore. And I think for me, especially after Ryan died, because I felt such a pull to help other people um, going through grief and trauma, because I don't know, like I feel not like I'm kind of made to help guide people and be a leader in this. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I can hold a lot on my shoulders in terms of holding space for other people and still being able to process my own grief and help other people, which I think is a gift. Like, I don't think a lot of people can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to share my story so openly and so vulnerably online, I think, um, I don't think everybody really agrees with that. I think they think maybe it's like for attention or for reasons that aren't, um, you know, aligned with what they would think would, would be appropriate. Um, I think we have so- uh, society as a whole, when we lose somebody, especially like a young, a young mother, widow, you know, they, they don't think that maybe it's appropriate to be so bold and loud and open about these things that we should keep a lot of these things private. And, um, that's just not what I felt was aligned with my calling after Ryan died or even what Ryan would want, because I know that he would want me to do what felt in alignment with my new identity now and just to like go all in with it because that's what he did in life. And I don't think people... I don't think people, all people agree with that or think it's, um, you know, what they yeah, would but do. You're, yeah, but you're super clear. And I think that's the thing is, especially when you get into the online space, where you're going to have everybody, some people are going to have all kinds of different opinions. And I just love that you're so, um, yeah, you're just super solid with who you are and what you want to do with this. So besides this wonderful book, Running in Trauma Stilettos, which is such a great title, what what else do you want to to create that's um, beyond just sharing online? Do you want to create something kind of more uh, structured or tangible through which people can connect and and um, you know recover uh, some from their grief? Yeah. So also during the aftermath of uh, Ryan passing, and also you know writing this book. I became a, a certified grief educator um, through David Kessler's program. Who he's um, he's a very well known grief educator, and he helps people through grief. So I took his course. So I'm certified to help others, and I offer coaching for those going through um, similar traumas and and uh, grief journeys to help guide people, you know, find their new identities after loss and get to a place where they find peace in their grief journey instead of just feeling that pain um, and just holding space for, for those that are going through similar events. Because 
I think the problem, I think the problem, because I see this with messages that I get and also comments that I get and things I share, that people think that after a loss, a traumatic loss, um, especially of a spouse, like that, that's it for them. Like their life, the best of their life is past. And like, I want people to know that, that they can actually, they can actually become their best selves through the loss. Um, they don't have to, you know, they don't have to think that their best days are behind them just because they suffer this kind of loss. And I think that's so sad. Like I want to be evidence that, that they can do great things after this because so there's a lot of young widows. Like it makes me so sad that they think like at the age of like in their twenties and thirties, like this is it. Um, yeah, no, even I've had, I've had friends that I've known in, in, you know, forties and fifties who've have gone on and recovered and, you know, found happiness and remarried. And it's like, yeah, it's just another chapter and it's not a comparison to what was before. It's an evolution. And that's what we want to do as humans in general is that we want to, because at, at the end of the day, you're Whitney, you're, 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 yes, you're a mom and you're a wife, but you're a woman and you're a human and you should all have, you should be entitled to as much joy and potential in the future as you did before. It's just changed now. The whole parameters have changed and the ecosystem. So I think that you doing that and showing others is is such a great, um, it's such a great way to, to, to make the, I don't want to say silver lining, but to make what you've been through something that can be so healing for others as well. Yeah. I, I just want to give people hope and like evidence that this is possible because I don't think there's enough evidence that when something like this happens, that people do are able to be, have a happy life after and find joy or love again, if that's what they, they choose to do. Uh, There's not enough evidence out there. There's a lot of evidence of the contrary. Like, so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence that people get into drugs and alcohol, that they become depressed, their mental health issues. Like, there's so much evidence on that side, but not enough evidence of like growing and evolving and actually getting better and thriving. Um, Yeah. And thriving. Like, we need more of that because that's how people know it's possible. If you don't show them what's possible, then they don't think it is. Amen. All right. Well, I could talk to you forever. First of all, everybody, <laughs> please go and check out Whitney Allen's book, Running in Trauma Stilettos. Where where else can people find out information about you, find out about the book and the other offerings? Yeah. So on social media, um, Instagram and TikTok, I'm at Whitney Lynn Allen and Lynn is with one N. Um, you can go to my website if you're interested in grief coaching um, and that's WhitneyLynnAllen.com. And then on Facebook, it's Whitney Allen um, or Whitney Lynn Allen is my business page. But I usually post uh, on my personal page, which is Whitney Allen. Well, we will have all that in the show notes. And um, yeah, I just I love that I that social media brought us together. I just found that clip of yours and I just saw like, yeah, that energy and that desire to really share something um in a vulnerable and open way that was is is giving people permission to also do that and i think that's really really important really important so thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your heart and my heart just goes out to yours for this new stage 
And I hope you find a lot of joy and continue to heal and help others. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And for everybody who's listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.